0: If you have children with you who are between the ages of four and six, you may send them to children's worship training where they will learn more about corporate worship and how to worship together, to sing together, to pray together, to sit quietly and listen to God's word together. They're also welcome to remain here with you as we turn together to the book of 1 Corinthians. You may already have your finger in 1 Corinthians 15 from our scripture reading. The text we will be looking at this morning is the first 28 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 28. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Then He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet, but when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him. That God may be all in all. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would reach us with your word, that as we hear it, it would take deep root in our hearts. We ask this, Lord, in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, let me ask you this morning, what is so special about Easter? Is it all the candy that we get to eat, young people? Is it that we get to dress up in our finest clothes? Is it the flowers? Is it the cards? Is it the time that we get to spend with our family? No, what is special about Easter is the gospel story and the glorious culmination of the gospel story in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a reminder of what should thrill our hearts each and every Sunday, that we have been redeemed by the risen Christ who has conquered death and sin. And so we come to 1 Corinthians 15 here this morning we come to see how crucial the resurrection is to our way of thinking and our way of life. And I'd like us to see three things from our text this morning. First, the resurrection is crucial to the gospel message. Second, the resurrection is crucial to our life now. And then third, the resurrection is crucial to our future. The gospel message, our life now, and our future, each of which is shaped and formed by the truth of the resurrection. So when we come here to this text, we see that the resurrection is crucial to the gospel message because Jesus' resurrection is actually the gospel itself. Now, sometimes we can forget this. We can forget the things that are the most important. After all, life gets busy and it distracts us. If you want proof of that, just look at the income of the man who invented the post-it note. We're constantly having to write things down and stick them all over the place to remind us because life gets very busy and we get distracted. But there's another thing that comes to us at times. There are times when we can believe that we have moved on from the basics of the faith. Things like the Incarnation, the Resurrection, the Crucifixion. We want to move somehow into higher and more delicate matters. Thirdly, sometimes it can be a challenge because we're worried about what others think of us. And we are less bold to proclaim the cardinal truths of the Scriptures because we are afraid others will think we are foolish or unscientific. In a way, this is kind of what happened to the Corinthians. Now, you do recall that this chapter is not just a resurrection chapter. It's a chapter in a letter written to real people in a real church in a real city called Corinth. You remember Corinth? Paul visited Corinth in Acts chapter 18. He had been there before. And when he came, there was opposition to his ministry. He went into the synagogue to reason with the Jews, and they would not respond. Although, ironically, one of the few who responded was the leader of the synagogue. And then he went off and spoke to the Gentiles of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and of salvation that could be found in Christ. And we get the impression that Paul was discouraged because he was speaking and people were not responding. He might have even thought this was a waste of his time and was ready to go. He might have been concerned he would have been harmed by the opposition. And the Lord comes to Paul in a dream and he says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And Paul's ministry bore that out. He was in Corinth for a year and a half. And many were converted, and a church was established. But something had come up in the interim of Paul leaving and Paul writing this letter. The Corinthians, I think, quite frankly, had become bored with the daily routine of following Jesus. They wanted something special to happen. They were looking for special gifts special recognition, special notoriety. As you read the book of 1 Corinthians, this comes across to you. The Corinthians had even come to a place, many of them, where they thought they had so arrived that they'd already experienced the resurrection. Because they looked around and said, well, you can't get better than me. So I must have already experienced the resurrection. And so Paul had to confront them with the great truth of the resurrection. Now, this often happens to us in our world as well. We sometimes have very little time for Jesus, don't we? Many of us think that we are beyond a need for a Savior, that as long as we just keep going along, things will be fine. (coughs) And so we think very little about what the resurrection means for us. And so Paul reminds us that the resurrection is the gospel. That's actually how he begins this passage. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. Now remember, chapter 14 is a chapter, a discourse on spiritual gifts and prophecy. The Corinthians were all concerned about how professional they were. And so Paul comes to them at the very beginning of this chapter and he says, You know, I really need to just tell you the gospel. You need to understand the basics first. That's a great irony. And so he begins again with the Corinthians. This Greek word here for remind is very interesting because it actually doesn't mean remind, it actually is better translated, make known. It's as if Paul is treating them as if they'd forgotten everything in the first place and he had to start from scratch. But of course, he had already spoken to them and so the translators, I think, properly translated for us, remind he is making it known again to them. And so Paul tells us of the importance of the gospel. He says, I want to remind you of this gospel by which you are being saved. Now think about that for a moment. He doesn't say by which you will be saved. What he is saying to the Corinthians and what he is saying to you is that if you believe the gospel, if you believe the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, came to earth, became man, lived a perfect life, died a shameful death on the cross that you deserved and that he was placed in a tomb and after three days, death could not hold him and he rose again. If you believe that, you are being saved right now. Jesus is for you. Paul tells us that this gospel is something that we must focus on and we must hold fast to. He says we must hold fast to the word I preach to you. Now, let me give you a picture of what holding fast looks like. You are to hold on to the gospel the way that I at least hold on to a ride at an amusement park. Now, I know some of you, I have children that are like this, enjoy having their stomach in their throats and being thrown around and risking death. I do not. I would rather stand on the side. And occasionally, my kids will browbeat me into riding some monstrosity. And I sit in the chair and I close my eyes because I'm afraid the mere act of opening my eyes will fling me out to my death. And my hands try as hard as they can to fuse into the metal of the bar. My hands become red. My knuckles become white. I am holding on for dear life. That's how you are to hold on to the gospel. It is not something you can give or take. It's not something you maybe make some time for. It is your life. You will perish without it. And so Paul tells us that this is the same old gospel that he preached to them before. What is this gospel? Now, the gospel is comprehensive of all of life. And I don't want to minimize that. But there is also a core to the gospel. A foundation to the gospel. It's what Paul calls things of first importance. It's the things you start with. If perhaps when you're at work this week, someone comes up to you and says, Did you go to church on Easter? And you say, Well, yes, I did. Do you really believe this gospel? What is it? Go to 1 Corinthians 15. The basics are that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose from the grave. That's the foundation of this gospel. Paul calls it things of first importance. These three days, these three events form the focus of all of history. Why is this? Well, first and foremost, Jesus' death points us to our own need. It reminds us that we are sinners who deserve death. Now, that's not a popular opinion in 21st century America, but it's what the Scripture tells us is true. And if we are blissfully waltzing toward death, someone should warn us that we need Jesus. It reminds us that God did not leave us to stay in our state of rebellion and sin, but rather God did the only thing He could do to save us. He sent His Son To pay our penalty. He sent his son to live a perfect life and die the death we deserve. And so Easter begins with a death. Now I know some now in the church are seeking to move away from that death. Saying, I don't want to spend time thinking about a bloody atonement. I don't want to think about me being substituted for Jesus. I don't like that that makes God look angry. But the truth of the gospel is that our salvation is found in Jesus paying our penalty. Jesus' burial shows to us that he really died. That the price was actually paid. Now this was no trick. He was in the grave three days. Now how foolish is it to deny that? Now, I don't have time this morning to give you 101 proofs for the resurrection, but let me just ask you one question. What would you think if in modern America, a couple of custodians walked up to a group of Green Berets and said, "Um, we're going to get past you into that room without you knowing it? You'd think it'd be foolish, wouldn't you? That's how foolish it is to think that a bunch of fishermen from Galilee could overcome Roman soldiers hardened by battle without them knowing it. He was really dead. Jesus' resurrection shows us that the price had been actually paid, that death could not hold Jesus. If Jesus' death shows that he paid the penalty, Jesus' resurrection tells us that it's paid in full, that there is nothing remaining. Death could not hold him. And so without the resurrection, we have no gospel at all. The second thing we see is that Jesus' resurrection is what we are to preach. So it is not surprising that the resurrection is what is proclaimed because it is the gospel. After all, that's exactly what Paul is doing right here. He is proclaiming the gospel. But the scriptures have been proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection throughout all of history. The prophet Isaiah, who prophesied so clearly of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ that oftentimes it is nicknamed the gospel of Isaiah, writes this in Isaiah 53 of our Lord's death. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from one whom men hide their faces, we despised him and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was brought the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our Lord Jesus Christ is prefigured here in the prophet Isaiah who spoke of his death. But Isaiah also speaks in another place of the resurrection of those who follow the Lord. In Isaiah 26 verse 19 he writes, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy. For your dew is like a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Tell me the resurrection is a New Testament doctrine. It is found throughout all of the scriptures. And it was actually the very first thing proclaimed by Jesus. Think about that. After his resurrection, he went and he saw Peter, and he saw the disciples, and he saw more than 500. And the very first thing he proclaimed was, I am alive. The victory has been won. And it is this event that changes everything. You don't believe me? Take the example of Paul. Paul describes himself as abnormally born. Now, sometimes I think we look at this text where Paul rattles off all of the people who've seen Jesus and we take Paul to be saying that I'm sort of the last one to the table. That's why I was born out of time or abnormally born. I don't think that's what Paul means. I don't think he just means he was last to see Jesus. I think there's more than that because Paul knows that he was ripped out of a life of sin and selfishness and brought to the Lord by the risen Christ. He says, I was the one who persecuted the church of God. But the grace of God came to me literally in the risen Christ. The risen Christ met Paul and changed him forever. All you have to do is look at the book of Acts. Look at all of the things that Paul was able to accomplish by the grace of God. He planted churches. He traveled the world. He survived whippings, shipwrecks, snakes. All by the grace of God. What difference does the resurrection make for you today? Has it changed the way you live? Has it changed the way you think? Has it changed what you hope for? The resurrection makes all the difference in our lives. No one can stop this gospel message as it goes forth. Paul says, he preached and they believed. And so the call for us is to bring this message of the resurrection out to a world that is dark and lost, so that others can believe. So if today you don't have hope, underneath your nice clothes, underneath your smile, you need to know today that there is resurrection power in Jesus Christ. That you can have hope because of Christ. That the gospel is not just for some church people. The gospel is for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, the scripture tells us. This is the power of the message of the gospel of the resurrection. And no one can stop this message. Not those who want to blunt it in the church. Not those who in our culture and in our society want to attack it. Not even all the powers of the government. I have seen this firsthand in China. There are cities in China where the government is setting up video cameras to monitor who comes in and out of churches to stop them from coming. They put cameras above the pulpit to monitor what the pastor preaches to stop him from preaching. They even put cameras over the offering box to stop people from giving. And do you know what's happening to the church in China? It's exploding. A conservative estimate is that there are 90 million Christians in China. I had the great privilege of meeting with godly elders and pastors a few weeks ago who are seeking to form a new denomination, a church of more than 2 million members across China committed to reformed theology and the scriptures. Nothing can stop this gospel because the power of God is behind it. Paul then moves on to the next question. If the risen Christ is preached, why would some deny the resurrection? Why would some deny that Jesus is raised? Because the resurrection is actually crucial to how we live right now. Paul puts it this way, if Jesus is not raised, then we are still in our sins. Why would some seek to reject the resurrection of Christ? Well, some might be beholden to that culture we talked about. Back then, in Paul's day, the culture said that the soul was immortal. And there was no such thing as a resurrection of the body. And any person knew that. To think otherwise was to be a fool. So it is different in our day, but still the same. In our day, anyone who doesn't believe we're just a collection of atoms, purely material, we're all just worm food, is clearly a fool. And so some seek to blunt the resurrection. Others might be skeptical of Christ's resurrection. After all, how can we prove this event beyond a shadow of a doubt? I'm going to give you a secret. You can't. You can't prove the resurrection to someone who is predisposed to reject it because they reject Jesus you can give them 101 proofs of the resurrection and they will ask for 102. Because it's not about the mind. It's about the heart. But that is not the same as providing reasonable proof. We can easily provide reasonable proof of the resurrection. Perhaps the simplest and quickest way to say it is it stretches the imagination beyond credulity to imagine that Unlearned men would suffer persecution for decades for a lie. This is just something that is not within people. Some want everything now. They don't want anything later. The Corinthians were of this sort. But we have some in our day who don't want to think about eternity, who only want the Jesus that gives them money and good health. And that's enough for them. And they would reject the resurrection of Christ. But Paul warns us about doubting the resurrection. He says that without the resurrection, we have nothing. Look at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If there is no resurrection, there is no reason to preach, and there is nothing to believe in. Because faith is faith in the risen Christ. It's not faith in faith. It's not faith in something vague. It's not faith in happiness and bubbles and ponies. It is faith in Jesus Christ. And we see the history of our nation work out Paul's theology. Because early in the 20th century, there were many in the church who thought that they could move away from the resurrection that you didn't need to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, that you didn't need to believe in the bodily resurrection of the saints, and that everything would just be fine. They could work toward social justice. They could work toward loving their fellow man, and everything would be the same. And if you want to see the results of that, all you need to do is to tour the dozens upon dozens upon dozens of large, beautiful, empty churches in the nation. Where no one cares about the church, no one cares about its ministry, no one cares about anything. Because if you rip the resurrection out of the faith, you have nothing left. But it's also something that's very personal for you and for me. Because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no hope of forgiveness. Paul says, our faith is futile, it is empty, it is useless. Why is that? Because if Jesus is not raised, there is no victory. And if there is no victory, there is no spoils. So Paul makes it clear, not only is there no faith if there is no resurrection, he says in verse 17 that there is no forgiveness. You are still in your sins, he says. The resurrection is crucial to the gospel. And that is why it is crucial to our life now. Because if the resurrection is not true, then Jesus is a liar. And what, would, what reason would there be to follow a lie? Bonhoeffer puts it this way, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian. He says, I find salvation not in my life story but only in the story of Jesus Christ. Are you looking for forgiveness and hope and peace in yourself and what you can do? You won't find it there. You only find forgiveness and peace in Jesus, in His story, the story that culminates in His rising from the grave to victory Over sin. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, I now know that He is victorious over sin. But there is a related point. If Christ is not raised, not only are we still in our sins, we have no hope. And so Paul begins by striking at something that we see with familiarity and with finality. He begins by talking about loved ones... In the Lord who are dead. You see this in verse 18. He says, Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, when we think about loved ones who have died, we realize that they are gone. That here on earth, nothing is going to bring them back. There's no magic pill, there's no new breakthrough in scientific medicine. There's no wishing upon a star that will bring a loved one back. There is a real sense of finality with that. There is no earthly hope at all. But with the resurrection, they are not truly gone. There is hope. And if we reject the resurrection, we have lost all hope. Paul wants us to understand the depth of despair that we would have for our loved ones if the resurrection were not true. It would be a crushing weight that perhaps we could not even go on. Stop for a moment to think about the hopelessness of that. Would there be any amount of intellectualizing, any amount of thinking that would stop that hopelessness? but it also affects how we live today. If there is no resurrection, then Christian morals and ethics mean absolutely nothing. This is, of course, the great argument of unbelievers. That they say, I could do whatever I want. After all, we're all just worm food. The way we live is driven by our love for Jesus, who has purchased redemption for us, who has freed us from sin, And who will raise us to new life. You see, our hope ultimately is not in this life. Uh, The resurrection helps us to look around at our world with eternal eyes. And Paul says, if we are focused only on this life. He's very emphatic. If we're only looking at this life. We are to be most pitied of all people. Because you see, our hope is beyond this life. Do you wonder if there is more to life than this? There is. You can find hope in spite of all of your circumstances. We all want to do things over, don't we? We all wish there was a do-over button in life so that we could fix our mistakes, do things right, put things back on the right track. And I have to tell you, that's not happening. You can't live life over again. This is not your best life now. But Jesus died and rose again that you would rise to new life. Finally, we see that the resurrection is crucial to our future. You see, Paul tells us because Jesus lives, we live. Paul moves on to the reality of new life in our text. He has been telling us about all of the problems that would come up if Christ were not raised. All of the difficulties, the challenges, the discouragements. And now in verse 20, he moves to one of my favorite words in all of the Bible. But, this is one of the greatest buts in all of the Bible. There's another one in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy. There's another one in 1 Corinthians 6 that reminds us, when we think about our own sin and our shame, he says, such were some of you, but you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified. Here, Paul lays aside all of the objections to the resurrection, and he says, but Jesus has been raised. So don't worry about that. It's true. Jesus is alive. And this shows us the first fruits of the resurrection. Now, this is a farming illustration that that Paul is using The way a farmer would know that his crops were growing and that the harvest would be successful is as the first fruits came up and they were healthy and good, he would know there would be plenty more to come. There was a physical, tangible sign that things were going the way they were supposed to. That's what Jesus' resurrection is for you and me. We don't have to wait until our resurrection. We can know with certainty because Jesus is risen. Because Jesus is alive, we know we will live. And Jesus is actually the beginning of it all. Those who have died have life in Christ. And we who are approaching death have life in Christ. And Paul actually uses the certainty of death to remind us of the certainty of the resurrection. He says, just as in Adam, all die. Now, that's something that we could get even the most unchristian of people to agree with. Everybody dies. As a matter of fact, some of you in school have seen that form of teaching logic. All men die. Socrates is a man. Socrates will die. It's a given. And Paul says, just as given as that is, All in Christ will rise. All in Christ will live. You know, it's said that there are only two things certain in the world. Death and taxes. Neither of them are as certain as the resurrection of the dead. Because that is sealed with the work of Jesus Christ. Our future is secured by Jesus' resurrection. How could we not celebrate that? To know that our future is secured by the living Christ. Paul's final point is that the resurrection is actually even bigger than giving us new life. Because Jesus lives, He reigns. And so Jesus not only redeems his people, he redeems all of creation. The end of it all, as we see in verse 24. The purpose of everything, then comes the end when the kingdom of God comes. All of God's enemies will be put down. And that means creation itself will be confirmed. Where Adam rebelled, Jesus submitted. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I have another secret to tell you. When you read in the obituary column or when you see on the television that so-and-so died of natural causes, do not believe them. It is a lie. Death is not natural. They may all die of the same cause, sin in the world, but death is unnatural and Jesus has conquered that enemy. The natural course of our existence is to live in fellowship with the Lord our God. And Jesus has secured that through his kingly reign. The sting of death is sin and the power of death is the devil and Jesus has defeated both in the empty tomb. No more do they have any power over your life. This Resurrection Sunday, we do more than dress up And greet each other. We do more than think about our hope. We begin to declare the victory of King Jesus over death, sin, and the devil. Our Jesus reigns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you have brought us a clear glimpse of what our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished through His death, burial, and resurrection. There is none like Jesus, fully God, fully man, the Redeemer of His people. And we ask this morning, Lord, that You would point our eyes toward the cross, point our eyes toward the Lord Jesus Christ, that in Him we would not only find, but we would live in hope. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.